bringing you the latest in tax credit news. This is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, April 3rd, 2018. Two years ago this week, Congress had just returned from recess and it was deliberating legislation to provide a temporary increase in the low-income housing tax credit in tax and housing bonds. This was part of a larger economic stimulus package. That was 2008, the beginning of the Great Recession. Now, among other things, a two-year, 20% increase in low-income housing tax credit allocation authority did make its way into the housing stimulus package that eventually passed, along with a number of other enhancements and improvements to the low-income housing tax credit including the creation of a 9% floor tax credit percentage. Now I'm going to talk more about current efforts to further increase low-income housing tax credit allocation authority later in this podcast. But let's turn to this week's podcast. I'm going to talk about the fiscal year 2018 income limits that were released by HUD last Friday. Some pretty record-breaking percentage increases. I'll also discuss the new income averaging option for low-income housing tax credit properties that was passed as part of this spending bill. And after that, I'm going to share some brief news on the Cantwell Hatch Low Compensing Tax Credit Bill, information on requests for more HUD and USDA funding, and a proposal to create a new Illinois State Historic Tax Credit. If you're ready, let's get started. The big news last week was that HUD, on last Friday to be exact, released the income limits for fiscal year 2018. These income limits went into effect on Sunday, April 1st, just a couple days ago, and they're used to set tenant income and rent limits for numerous assisted housing programs. Now, here's what we know so far about the fiscal year 2018 limits. Overall, national income numbers are on the rise. The national median household income for fiscal year 2018 is $71,900. That $71,900 amount represents a 5.7% increase over the prior year, 5.7%. Now, by comparison, last year the increase was 3.5%. But the year before that was a decrease of 0.15%. Area median incomes have been fairly flat over the last few years. That's why this year is so notable. In fact, the average annual increase over the last five years had been less than 1%. Now, as a general matter, this low growth rate has meant lower than on average increase in tenant rents. So tenant rents have been rising as rapidly, obviously a good thing for tenants. However, it also meant low increases in property revenues admits rising operating expenses. Now, with this 5.7% increase, when you go back and look at the five-year average, that five-year average will now be about 2%. And also, we project next year's national income numbers to also rise over 5%. That means that next year, the five-year moving average will move up to 3%. A 3% annual increase in income. 3%, by the way, is a more normalized average annual historical increase in average family incomes. Now, income and rent limits are specific to an area, obviously, so we at Novogratik will be publishing insights from this data at a lower level, a county and metropolitan statistical area, non-metro area level, 
in the coming weeks and months ahead, and even in the next few days. But to get started, we are dissecting the information by county. They may not know this, but there are over 4,700 counties or county equivalents in the United States and its possessions, Puerto Rico and the like. Of those over 4,700 counties, about 14% are going to see double-digit increases in income limits. 14% will be double-digit increases in income limits. And more than half of those 4,700 counties are going to see income limit increases of at least 5%. On the other end of the spectrum, less than 650 or less than 14% are going to see income limits of less than 1%. So in short, the HUD income limit release means, on average, notable potential increases in rental income from tax rate properties. Now one item to note, I mentioned the double-digit increases, but increases in income limits for income and respective rent, those limits are capped at 11.5%. So if statistically they're more than 11.5%, the cap in these income numbers is 11.5%. There are about 300 counties that had income increases in excess of this cap, some well in excess of this cap, which means those areas will have built-in demand or built-in likelihood for increases in future years. With respect to rural properties, you should note that if you're a rural property with 9% low-income housing tax credits, then you can use the greater of the national non-metro median income number or the income limit that would otherwise apply. So if you have one of those properties, you're concerned to know what happened with the national non-metro median income for fiscal year 2018. Well, that number is 58400 and that's an increase of more than 5.5% from the previous year. So all in all, the increased income limits are generally good news. These higher income limits will allow a greater percentage of the population to qualify for Section 8 assistance and low-income housing tax credit apartments. Now, one thing that is different this year is the new income averaging option that was enacted under the Consolidated Appropriations Act 2018. Under previous law, households moving into low-income housing tax credit properties could qualify only if their income did not exceed 60% of area median income. Now, the new income averaging rule that was enacted as part of the spending bill allows certain units in a low-income housing tax credit property to be available to residents earning up to 80% of their median income yet still qualify for tax credits. How is this possible? Well, the development-wide average still has to be at 60% or less. Now, HUD hasn't specifically addressed income averaging in its income limits announcement. Uh, the law did pass close to when the limits came out, so I'm not too surprised. But you can read more about income limits and income averaging implications on my blog. And I do plan to touch on income averaging more in a bit during this podcast. But for now, I wanted to share a few useful resources with you about these income limits. Now, first, we offer a free rent and income limit calculator. It's on the Novogratz website. Once again, free rent and income limit calculator on the Novogratz website. You can use it to calculate rent and income limits for every county and for every metropolitan statistical area in the United States. It's not updated yet, but we are updating the calculator with the fiscal year 2018 income limits 
and the updated calculator will be available soon. You should make sure that you're subscribed to Novogratz's free industry alert so you'll get an email notifying you as soon as the rent and income limit calculator is updated. We also offer for purchase a Novogratz rent and income limit estimator. This estimator would help you understand how income and rent limits can change over the next one or two years. I encourage you to contact one of my partners at a Novogratz office near you if you have any questions about this year's income limits. Now, I've included links to the income limits, relevant blog posts, the rent and income limit calculator, and the industry alert email subscription page in today's show notes. Now, let's circle back to income averaging. Prior law requirements, that is prior to this recent spending bill, were that the low-income housing tax credit property owner had to designate one of two minimum set-aside tests. The first test was that you had to have at least 20% of the units be affordable or rent-restricted and occupied by households with incomes at or below 50% of the area median income. The second option, the other option, was to have at least 40% of the units affordable to and occupied by households with incomes at or below 60% of the AMI. The new income averaging rules provide a third minimum set-aside option, income averaging. Now, we'll explain it in a moment, but I want to remind you the purpose of creating this income averaging option. First, to create greater diversity in income levels in low-income housing tax credit properties. Second, to make low-income housing tax credit properties financially feasible in some areas where they otherwise wouldn't be. And then third, to allow a greater cross-section of population to qualify for affordable housing, but letting households with incomes up to 80% of their median income qualify for housing, while using those higher rents from the 80 and 70% units to subsidize deeper targeted units. The income averaging option provides a third choice for low-income housing tax credit property owners. So, let's talk about the test. It has three requirements for income averaging. First, at least 40% of the apartments have to be affordable to and occupied by households whose income does not exceed the income limit designated by the taxpayer. Second, the average of those income limit designations can't exceed 60% of the AMI. And finally, the designated income limitation for individual apartments has to be one of the following options. It has to be one of the following options. 20 percent, 30%, 40%, 50%, 60%, 70%, or 80%. Yes, 10% increments. And it's all of their immediate income. So in other words, the property owner would designate individual apartments as being, for instance, a 70% AMI unit or a 20% AMI unit. Now, the income averaging is applied, though, to the unit, not the resident. That's important to remember. This means that if a household earns 65% of the AMI, then that 65% would qualify the household to move into a unit designated as 70% or 80% of the AMI. And whichever unit is chosen, it's that unit designation that's used in the income averaging, not the actual 65% AMI of the resident in terms of what they earn. Now, it's also note, the size of the apartment doesn't matter. A property owner could designate larger apartments as a higher rent, and those apartments could be offset with a smaller apartment at a lower rent. This, of course, subject to other rules from other funding sources or other rules that the state agency may apply. Income averaging of the property is the average of all of the units with each unit given the same weight, 
regardless of its relative size. Another important reminder, the income averaging option is just that, an option. Property owners can still elect the 2050 or 4060 set-aside test and operate as they always have in the past. The minimum set-aside election is irrevocable. Unfortunately, that means any property not undergoing recapitalization would have to retain its original election. Even more than that, there are significant hurdles if a property undergoes resyndication and wishes to switch to income averaging. As a consequence, this income averaging option is primarily going to apply to properties that have not yet made their minimum set-aside election. Now, there are many questions about income averaging that haven't been answered, and we do expect guidance from the IRS in the coming months. To learn more about income averaging, I'd encourage you to go to our blog. It's hard to explain income averaging on a podcast. Hopefully, I've explained it in a way that at least encourages you to go to our blog post and read it. It's on income averaging. Furthermore, we're going to have a webinar on income averaging on April 17th. That's April 17th, 10 a.m. Pacific time. Go to our website to register for the webinar as well. I'll post a link to both of these, the blog post and the webinar, in today's show notes. Turning to other news, 16 Democrat senators recently signed on as co-sponsors of the Affordable Housing Credit Improvement Act, also known as the Cantwell-Hatch Bill. Before this, there had been an effort to pair Republicans and Democrats as co-sponsors. As a result, though, with this increase of 16, there are now 38 co-sponsors to the bill, 26 Democrats, 10 Republicans, and two independents. The House version of the bill has 141 co-sponsors, a near-even split of Democrats and Republicans, and a sizable portion of the 435 members of the House of Representatives. Now, a couple of the Cantwell House provisions were included in the recently enacted omnibus spending bill for fiscal year 2018, namely an increase in the Local Housing Tax Credit Allocation Authority and, of course, the income averaging option. Now, I do want to note, though, only a portion of the Cantwell-Hatch bill ask with respect to increases in tax allocations were included. Cantwell-Hatch called for a 50% allocation increase. The Omnibus bill enacted a 12.5% increase, and that 12.5% increase is only for four years. It's 12.5% a year for each of the next four years. In essence, it's as if they gave us a one-year 50% increase and then said, but you can claim it over four years. As I mentioned in last week's podcast, the low-income housing tax credit provisions in the spending bill, passage of those two items, is definitely a great first start. But it is just a start. There's much more work to be done. Enacting the full Cantwell-Hatch bill would be an incredible next step. In other affordable housing news, Representative Maxine Waters of California has posted four letters to her congressional colleagues asking for more funding for rental and homeless assistance programs. Waters was joined by several colleagues on most of the letters. These letters seek more funding for HUD offerings, including Section 8 and other programs, more money for HUD's CDBG, Community Development Block Grant programs, more money for the USDA rural housing programs, and full funding for McKinney-Vento Homeless Assistance Grants. I'll provide links to the letters in today's show notes. Unfortunately, I don't think the letters are going to have a lot of impact in terms of seeing more dollars 
going to head, but it is nice to know directionally water's views. And finally, a state representative in Illinois has introduced legislation to create a state historic tax credit. This credit would apply to 34 of the state's 102 counties, those considered to be in the Mississippi River region. Now the credit would be for 25% of qualified rehabilitation expenses, and there would be aggregate limits for each county. Now as you know, Illinois does have a state historic tax credit, but that credit only applies to five cities. So we're gonna keep an eye on this legislation, and as it progresses, we'll keep you alerted on future podcasts. Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. I do have a reminder for you. There's still time to register for the Novogratic Financing and Renewable Energy Tax Credits Conference that's coming up. It's gonna be at the Palace Hotel in San Francisco on May 3rd and 4th. We're gonna discuss everything from tax reform and solar tariffs to solar storage and financing trends. If you want insights on what to expect for the renewable energy tax credit industry this year, make sure you register for the conference. Register soon by going to www.novico.com events. I look forward to seeing you there. And that's it for now. I'm Michael Novogratik. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratik and Company, LLP. Archived podcasts are available online at www.novico.com forward slash podcast or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. You can find related links referenced in this podcast in our show notes at www.novico.com forward slash podcast. Novogratik and Company LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novico.com.